Hello and welcome to the Culture Mirrors podcast. I'm Andy Williams. I'm Sean Wilson. And this week we are going to chat with you about some films that are coming out, um, some that have already been out. We're going to touch on some of the new releases that will be coming in the coming weeks. Um, but first off, we similar to, to a couple of weeks ago when we discussed uh, the late, great David Bowie, um, there's a, a true giant of broadcasting that has uh, unfortunately passed this past week. Um, Sir Terry Wogan, uh, for those that are unaware, had uh, such a long career in in broadcasting and uh he was a true icon in the the field of broadcasting and particularly radio which i'm sure those listening to this podcast can appreciate is almost the forefather of podcasting um we follow in his footsteps well we try we try we, we try i think um i mean what were your thoughts on on old terry uh, yeah it's well yeah like you say a giant of broadcasting who turned his hands to various different mediums he was really really good at interviewing people and in fact all what the clips that have been shown on tv this past week have demonstrated is his facility interviewing actors uh there's the famous one where he was interviewing roger moore i think for a view to a kill which is very funny Mm. and very personable and obviously wogan was a very personable likable person and the fact that even when he was faced with a difficult person he had the ability to turn that on its head and make it funny even if the interviewee was being awkward i think it was like Anne bancroft and john malkovich were both a bit odd mm. when he interviewed them yeah and i think you've sort of hit the nail on the head there is just using the word likable um i think the the key to what wogan did um is can be summed up very neatly in a, a piece of advice he gave to chris evans the guy who succeeded him on the breakfast show and it was basically you're talking to one person don't think that you're talking to millions and millions of people you're talking to one person and that one person you're you haven't got their full attention they're making their breakfast they're driving to work they're doing this they're doing that you're they're not hanging on your every word you've just got to be whimsical and relaxed about everything and and that was truly what he was and it had a you know a great influence on me from a very young age i was introduced uh listening to uh wogan when i was uh, being driven to school so you became a tog quite early on well a tig a uh, Terry's young geezer, yeah, yeah, uh-huh, yeah. Um, and I just, I love the fact he broke every rule. You, you don't talk over the pips. You don't make the pips go late. You don't talk over the beginning of songs. You don't eat curries at eight a.m. But Terry did all of this, and um, you know, a, a true, true giant. I mean, that's not even touching on the uh, the Eurovision uh, things that he did. Sorry, go that's on. what I think I remember him best from. He made that watchable, and uh, with, mm. with with with. Due deference to Graham Norton, Graham Norton hasn't quite lived up to that. Terry Wogan was just hilarious doing that. There was a real disdain. Yes, yeah, <laughs> it was yeah. unreserved disdain. Yeah, yeah. Whereas um, Norton seems to try to be slightly more positive. Um, very recently, uh, I think I talked about it on the podcast at the time. Terry and Mason's Great Adventure. It was across uh, Great Britain. They were going to different cities and towns and sampling food from uh, across across Great Britain. And it was just truly wonderful. Even the the opening voiceover says, I've cracked it. After this many years in, in broadcasting, I've cracked it. I now get driven places to eat. And that's basically what he did. I believe they came to Bristol, didn't they? Where we are. They, they, they were in Bristol. They did. They were in St. Nick's Market. Yeah. Um, Named one of the best markets in the country, by the way. Just want to point that out. Okay. Yeah. But... Um, so even that was was wonderful, and um, I've got really, really, uh, really good memories of watching that with the the theme music, um, making my at that point four month old dance to it. So um, you know, it's, 
it is one of those things that when someone has such an effect on on their profession on film on, on film on television on um on broadcasting on radio it it, it is clearly i think it's gone down as a, a huge tragedy for the nation as a national treasure um so uh there's just a, a highlight on the career of, of Terry Wogan. And I'm calling it now, 2016, don't take anyone else off us for the foreseeable future, okay? We've had a rough start to the year. We've had Terry Wogan, David Bowie, Alan Rickman, okay? Enough for the you, time being. You missed out Lemmy. Le- Le- Lemmy as well, yeah. It's just like, okay, this is, this has been a rough start. Mm. We don't want to lose any more legends now. <laughs> yeah, please, please no. But, yeah. Um, anyway, just quick tribute to, to Terry Wogan. So on to slightly lighter um, things now. We're going to be discussing the Oscar-nominated film, Spotlight. Um, this is the true story of the Boston Globe and the the fact that they investigated the Catholic Church for allegations of uh, touching and various things towards uh, towards young children. Um, so, Sean, why don't you give us a quick one run-through of what you thought? Yeah, it's a really impressive film. Like, like I said, it's been nominated for six Oscars, including Best Picture and Best Director, and it's being considered as the, the one of the front runners in this year's Oscar race. And it's not hard to see why when you watch it, because it's an impeccably researched story that apps that gets it understands the atmosphere and the environment that it's trying to depict absolutely brilliantly. It's, it's obviously a story about journalism, and when you do films about journalism, it has to be convincing. There has to be that verisimilitude. There has to be a sense that when you look when you look at it, you believe in it. I mean, journalism is screwed over routinely in so many movies. Mm. Uh, you get you remember uh, in well, you you mentioned Sex and the City too, which is just ludicrous and facile. Anyway, yeah, where she gets paid so much money to to not be at places and, and yeah. still keep housekeepers and. It's fine because she's yes. a journalist. She can write wherever she wants and do it. No, it's, don't it, buy it. It's bollocks. Journalism is not like that. Journalism is rooted in that. In what Spotlight observes is journalism is quite banal. It's very sort of get your head down, get the story. You know, get out the the pad and paper. Admittedly, this is set in the early two thousands, so obviously it's not as tech heavy as as a film set today would be necessarily. Mm. But it understands that the tenacity of what it takes to be a journalist. I mean, I wouldn't even begin to compare myself with the characters in this film, by the way. These are investigative journalists and these are you know, these are hardcore journalists. These are Yeah, these are the, the people that are behind the spotlight team, which yes. um in the, the Boston Globe was specifically designed for investigating the big stories. They spend months and months and months investigating a story to break it. And uh, as it's headed by uh, Walter Robbie Rob- Robinson, played by Michael Keaton, and it comprises Mark Ruffalo as Mark Resendez, uh, Rachel McAdams as Sasha Pfeiffer, and Brian Darcy James as Matt Carroll. And yeah, they they launch into this investigation at the behest of their new editor, uh, Marty Barron, played by Liev uh, Schreiber, who... How did you pronounce his first name? Uh, Liev. Oh. Yeah, I I thought I'm it was fairly sure it's Liev. I thought it was Leave. Leave. I thought, oh, it might be leave, yeah, yeah. Looking Apolog- remarkably like Jurgen Klopp in this film. Who's that? I showed you a picture of him before we went on. I forgot already. Yeah, he he did look lucky. <laughs> Fair enough, I'll take your word for it. Uh, yeah, and he, he encourages them. He's, there, there was some sort of investigation into the Catholic Church in the past, and then it sort of seemed to fall by the wayside, and he... He he reignites the interest in it and he says, look, this is a, there's I, I, he can sense a really big story and he sends them after it and very quickly it blows up into this quite horrifying and shocking investigation that has really widespread ramifications for the whole of you know the Boston diocese. Mm. Yeah, and I, you know I want to touch briefly on on some of the acting within the film. Um, 
you know, we know that uh, that Mark Ruffalo and Rachel McAdams and um, Michael Keaton have all been Oscar nominated. I don't think Michael Keaton has. Is he not on the best? No, actor? no, Michael Keaton hasn't. Okay, which is which is a surprise because I thought he was terrific. I this. Um However, what I wanted to touch on was just how great the acting. I mean, is there nobody more perfectly cast uh, to look like the slightly dishevelled, perennially late man than Mark Ruffalo? Yeah, well, this is this is one of the reasons why I really, really like the film is that, that the actors get the body language of who of of journalists brilliantly. And what the the film is is written, co-written, and directed by Tom McCarthy, who's a great indie director who did the Station Agent and Fifty Fifty. Came a bit of cropper last year with the Cobbler, which the Adam Sandler film. Cobblers. Uh, he seems to have rebounded from that big time. But he he works with the actors to. You don't look at them and, and see actors playing journalists. You see journalists. You see the fact that these are people who are wholeheartedly committed to their craft. They want they want to get the best story. They're pursuing the leads. They're writing everything down. They're cross-referencing everything. And each of the actors is absolutely brilliant. And one of the, one of the things I really liked about it was the little the little details about how it gets the hierarchical nature of journalism brilliantly the fact that you have the editor then you have the sub-editor then you have the reporters on the top and they mm-hmm. o- they occupy various almost various social positions you've got for example Rachel McAdams and Mark Ruffalo who live in fairly unremarkable scenarios apartments and it, yeah rather than the, the lavish detached house that has its own porch and yes exactly it's and not that yeah and then you've got michael michael keaton and and uh liev schreiber's characters are often seen at these very sort of elaborate soirees that are often attended by senior clergy and political figures which but what i love about that is specifically that that Liev schreiber's character i'm going to stop calling him Liev schreiber because you're off putting me off with a liev what liev yeah so <laughs> let's call him by his character name marty marty baron um so I th- what I like the most about that is the fact that he's very clearly the outsider in that. Yeah. There's, you know, you get Michael Keaton's character, Robbie, that is going up to everyone going, hey, how are you? And then you know, Lee Shriver's character is just sort of there on the edge, just sort of slightly awkwardly looking in. Well, that that's it. And that's what it gets brilliantly. The fact that as an editor, he is slight, he is a step away from the people on the ground. The, you know, the Mike Resendez, you know, the Sasha Pfeiffer's, they're, they're, they're the ones that go out there and put their nose to the ground and get the stuff. And whereas he is the editor, he has got the final approval mm. on what they do. The, the movie gets the air of journalism absolutely brilliantly. Although, as I said, you know, I'm a soft journalist comparison to what these guys did. I mean, they went on to win a, the real life team went on to win a Pulitzer Prize for this, and it's not surprising. Mm. Um, I wouldn't even begin to compare myself, but there are there are nuances and there are details in the way that the movie observes this particular career, this particular job, and I think that the direction itself is to be applauded for the way that it that it's actually very discreet. There is absolutely nothing showy about the film whatsoever. It's exactly what I was just about to say. Yeah. Um, see how on the same page we are. Well, exactly. And it's not very often that this, this happens too much anymore. <laughs> yeah. But um, I completely agree with you. It's not showy. It's not in your face. It's not, you know, you, when we talk back to, to The Revenant like we did uh, last week, it's not that kind of direction which is very much in your face. It's not the kind of direction like The Big Short which is, look at me, look how great I'm directing this film. It is very much, let the characters, let the story go. One quibble that I had was that I could have done with a scene on each of the journalists explaining their motivations and why. Quite Like, I understand the necessity to get the story and I understand the necessity to get answers, but I think that's more me adding to it as opposed to 
what's presented in the film. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I mean, ultimately, I think the film is as single-minded as as its characters. It's that that phrase, just the facts, man. You know, that mm-hmm. is the film in a nutshell. And I think, I do agree with you, I think that the, the, the quiet nature of the direction is both a strength and I think it's also a hindrance because I think as, as an emotional experience, I felt it to be somewhat dry. Uh, and I think that you don't get the emotional ramifications of what happens both the victims and the journalists themselves as a result of this investigation you don't get that i did get that Uh um i think that the way that rachel mcadams portrays the emotional impact is is wonderful there's um one particular scene right near the end of the film which i'm hoping that you'll be on the same page with me i think i know which one you Um, mean yeah Right near the, towards the end of the film, after sort of things does happen, it, and, does, it, does it involve someone reading? Yeah, something? yeah, yeah. yeah, it's yeah. A dialogueless, yeah, silent yeah. scene, but um, but yeah, as well in a, a scene similar towards that that end of the film. Um, again, something that I've mentioned to you off mic. This is involving a, a character played by Stanley Tucci. You should say who we, we haven't mentioned. Yeah. He's brilliant with a, an exchange between Stanley Tucci and, and Mark Ruffalo's character, and again that that really packed its punch for me. So I complete. I think. You hit the nail on the head earlier on, so I'm going to uh, quote you in our own podcast um, by uh, by saying that it was everything that built up to that point, just the tension and everything that that built up to that, and that the performances by both Ruffalo and uh, McAdams at that point just really, really paid it off for me. Um, but going back to Stanley Tucci, I mean, any film that's got Stanley Tucci in it is made thirty percent better. That's just a fact. Yeah, because he plays Mitchell Garabedian, who whose role in the drama is quite complex, and he's he's a lawyer who he has been involved in litigation around this area before, and he ends up being sucked back into this. And his hands vortex. are relatively tied in what yeah. he can do to help because of obviously legalities and things that are on closed files and things like that so yeah and he sort of hovers between the, the sort of the repellent and the sympathetic he sort of goes between those two poles and you're not quite sure how to make it and this being Stanley Tucci he's obviously got completely mad hair yeah obviously yeah. and he plays it really really well I mean again this being Stanley Tucci he can play deeply dislikable but also really really torn and also deeply likable yeah. so um that's no spoilers for anybody but um just he can do those things yeah i i thought it was a really well acted impeccably well researched and written film i think that, that that we shouldn't underestimate the the value of the script that's that's written by mccarthy and josh singer it's a really mm. really well constructed piece of drama the way that it it starts with them going into this investigation then sequentially it builds up and mm-hmm. you get a sense that everything is getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger around this investigation there's one shot i won't i won't reveal what happens within the shot but they're all gathered around a speakerphone and they're talking to somebody and the person on the phone says something which completely horrifies and shocks all of them all of the team almost their deep throat character yes yeah and there's there's this that action the camera slowly pulls back on them and you get a sense that everything is widening out and that's when you think oh crikey you know this is history in the making right here I feel I should reference the fact that uh, by Deep Throat, I was not referring to the um, slightly lewd film that's been uh, you? that was out in the past. No, oh, um, disappoint me. It was an all the present men reference. Oh yeah, that one. Yeah, um, and and funnily enough, I mean, it's taken us this long to raise the, the specter of that movie, with which this obviously invites comparison. It was a seamless transition, there, Sean. <laughs> and I just held it up, almost like I planned it. <laughs> almost like you planned it. Almost. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm disappointed even more now. Uh, yeah, I think well, obviously. All the president's men had a degree of atmosphere to it that 
well, it's the this, high watermark for journalist yes, films, isn't it? Yeah, it's, and and you know this this aspires to it. Clearly, it it can't come close to that. Obviously not. But what all the president's men it, actually it gets it's the same thing as all the president's men. What it gets right is the relation is the slightly distant relationship between the editor and the reporters. Because mm. you remember in all the president's men. Jason Robards is is the editor, the very fearsome sort of stern editor who every so often will pop out of his office and look over what they've done and go, mm-hmm. no, crap, crap, that doesn't work. Throw that out, do that, and then, then buggers off again. Yeah, that It gets that brilliantly. Yeah. And both Spotlight does that as, as all the President's Men does. But again, when you're... If you're trying to be, if you're trying to, to at least take influence from from a film, you just as well take it from the master of its genre. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah well, um, that is obviously, like we say, the high watermark for... Uh, for journalism films obviously again we're touching zodiac we mentioned um off mic uh again great way of uh and looking at journalism and i have to bring up uh one film that doesn't do disservice to journalism although it's not a journalism film is that abomination known as marley and me where um the grammar of that still annoys me yeah shouldn't uh, it be marley and i yeah probably yeah that's the least of its problems uh the fact where Owen wilson walks in front of alan Arkansas, hey what I'm, I'm a journalist it's like so cool i'm all wilson i'm like a journalist this is the first of many impressions that yep. i'm sure sean will be getting to throughout yeah. the course of this show yeah my, my blood boiled during that scene in marley and me i was really annoyed i can imagine um without diverting on to marley and me because i could talk yeah, a long long time don't, don't want don't do that um moving back to to spotlight and um, what do you think its chances are at the oscars yeah i reckon for me speaking personally i reckon it's got a very good chance i would rather it got best screenplay than best director to be honest i think as a piece of writing it's stronger than it is in its direction i think that the act i mean mark ruffalo and rachel mcadams have been both nominated i think they're both strong very strong performances i you know i wouldn't give it to either of them personally speaking I think supporting actors pretty much thrown up by Stallone and Creed, mm. um, but I would completely understand why Mark Ruffalo would get supporting actor. Well, yeah, I mean Mark Ruffalo. It, if you were to describe any of the roles in Spotlight as showy, it would be him. Now, I'm not. I, I, I'm not saying that that it is a show performance, but in relative terms, he's the one who gets the sort of the yelling and he the gets the grandstand moment of, yeah, of yeah. the the bit that's been in every single trailer, which happens about three quarters to slightly further on yeah. in the film like, um, we let it happen that 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 line yeah yeah they they continue yeah to children's yeah and yeah. and I, I'm, I'm mark ruffalo is rapidly turning into one of my favorite actors on the basis of the things like this Foxcatcher, the kids are all right obviously the avengers uh, films as well uh he's terrific and he comes across as a really really likable person off camera as well that always helps me like an actor even more uh yeah so i i, I wouldn't personally give it to the acting i'd give it to the screenplay what do you think i do understand that exactly what you're saying about the screenplay um in terms of its writing it is just second to none i'd think i i would i would not be too hard pressed if someone gave it a, a screenplay nod um best film possibly possibly not mm. um again i could understand it whereas with the big short i flat out could not understand why it was getting all the acclaim that it is with um spotlight i really really can i i can get it and if it gets it then great because let's be perfectly frank it was not a massively expensive film and um, it was one of those mid-range films that you don't tend to get too much anymore and it's told a really good story and it's told it really well it's well acted it's you know slightly understated in its direction but um it, you know any attention that it's getting is is absolutely fine by me and it is an intriguing uh 
in comparison to something like the revenant which the revenant is very much like da da look at me look what i've done i've gone out into the wilderness and done things for real and it's a bit like yeah stop showing off a little bit sort of like birdman well funny that isn't it hmm. with bit, the michael keaton like connection well yeah, there's a pattern here <laughs> well i was given the michael keaton connection but there we go oh right, fair enough <laughs> yeah see birdman anyway yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> so i think overall that's a, a, a almost as positive a review as we've given something in agreement yeah i don't think we've ever agreed that solidly we're all going to go downhill from here well yeah um <laughs> you're looking at your list aren't you i am yes yeah, yeah. um <laughs> But the good part of this is that uh, the next two films we're going to cover, I've not seen, so there's no cause for disagreement. Um, (laughs) So there's been a... a You don't want to see one of them, believe me. Mm. I kind of do, but at the same time, I kind of don't. (laughs) But we'll get to that. First off, we're going to talk about the Chilean minor film uh, starring Antonio Banderas, the 33. So, Sean, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? You made the cat angry. You do not want to make the cat angry. No. Sorry. Stop. I like Antonio Banderas. Stop calling him Puss in Boots. I, I, I didn't call him Puss in Boots. I just did the quote. He's Zorro. <laughs> he is Zorro, actually, yeah, to be fair. He's yeah, the yeah. narrator in Evita. Oh, yeah, 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 true. He's a fantastic actor. Yeah. And he's that friend. guy from the chewing gum commercial. <laughs> he really is, yeah. He's also the guy from Interview with the Vampire, which a lot of people seem to forget. And he's also now oh, yeah. the guy in the 33. Yeah, I forgot that. Yeah, with, with the ridiculously long hair. Um,. Yeah, so the 33, uh, a a dramatisation of the 2010 Chilean mining Atacama Desert disaster in which um, 33 miners, hence the title, uh, were trapped underground for a staggering 69 days. I mean, no doubt you remember this playing out on the news. Oh, massively, yeah. Yeah, it was all over the news for the best part of the world, obviously, the 69 days. Um, directed by Patricia Riggan, starring, as we've said, Antonio Banderas, Juliette Binoche. Weirdly non-Chilean cast, and we'll get to that in a minute. Um... But what happens is a um, group of miners, the various, you know, various setups, various domestic situations, they all go to their work at this mine in uh, the Atacama Desert, which, trivia fans, um, driest place on earth. It's never never rained. Wow. Thank you. <laughs> also, a very, very good film uh, about the Atacama Desert is about, uh, it was called Nostalgia for the Light, which is about the observatory to be found there. Really, really nice film. Okay, and... When was that? Uh, about two or three years ago, I think. Okay, cool. Well worth checking out. Excellent. Um, yes, yeah, so they they go to do their job. They um, they go into this you know, enormous, great big mine. Um, there ends up being um, a horrifying cave in in which uh, a piece of rock, which is twice the mass of the Empire State Building, ends up falling down and basically blocking their exit. And they have to retreat to a place called the um, the refuge where they have a, a, only enough food for three days and they have to obviously make that last. Meanwhile, up on the ground, all the, the, the wives and all the relatives are gathering. They're getting very fractious, very anxious because they're not getting, being given any information. Do you know who they need? Who do they need? They need Matt Damon to science the shit out of this. Matt Damon! Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, he needed to science the shit out of it and get a great big drill, which is what Gabriel Byrne arrives with. Yes, Gabriel Byrne plays the guy who's being tasked to get them out. Yeah, you look confused. Yeah. Him and, from the usual suspects. Yes, exactly. And there's, well, this is, this is, I, I made that exact same face. I was like, hang on. What is, uh, he's Irish. Why is he playing a Chilean guy? <laughs> and this is, this is one of the weird things about the movie. Like, the movie hasn't, hasn't had very good reviews. I didn't think it was all that bad, to be honest. So certainly... If you compare it to something like I was, I was making this comparison when I was watching it. Something like Captain Phillips, which took a look at a recent event, a horrifying recent event. I'm the captain now. 
yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and um, it's been put me off now. <laughs> um, um, yeah, and, and you, that looked at a real life situation, but it made you feel the urgency and the absolute terror of that situation. That's because Paul Greengrass is a brilliant director who comes from documentary and he's able to utilize that documentary aesthetic to pull you into this dramatization of what's going on in front of you he's really really good at doing that and very few directors are on that that sort of level um no disrespect to patricia riggan you know this is no paul greengrass movie it's a much more of like um sort of clumping forward in its work boots okay so that bit's going to happen so we're going to get this bit where the miners are all trapped in the ground going to fall out with each other then it's going to go back to the surface and you know the the relatives going to get a bit angry and a bit antsy then it's going to go over to the the government officials in their, you know, swanky palaces saying, you know what, we can't let these people die because it's going to look bad for the administration. Then it's going to go back to Gabriel Byrne with his great big drill, trying not to be Irish. Is that a euphemism? No, it's, it's not a euphemism. It's not, 50, it's not 50 shades of drilling. It's not that. It's just... They have some funny toys in that <laughs> yeah, film. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so it's very much sort of like A to B to C. Nothing, nothing unpredictable about it whatsoever. Very, very, you know, unremarkable in the way that it that it plays out. But you know, and the whole casting thing is is weird in the extreme because not only you have Antonio Banderas who's Spanish, you have Juliette Binoche who's French, you have Gabriel Byrne who's Irish, and then you have Bob Gunton playing the the president of uh, of Chile who's american do i see lou diamond phillips yeah lou there? diamond phillips is it and jo- well james brolin plays in americans that that makes sense that's fine yeah that's all right he's the only one who gets away with it um so i'm thinking hey I just I, I know that they they're obviously looking for big name stars to try and draw people to this film but it's just weird that they seem to go to like all points of the compass it was sort of like right where, where, where's Chile right let's just fan out and go as far away from Chile as we possibly can <laughs> it's really strange so that's peculiar but you know in terms of being a solid work workmanlike disaster thriller I wasn't bored watching it I was relatively engaged I want I want yeah you know, obviously I you know knowing the scenario that, that ultimately plays out I was still rooting for all of these characters and it's a terrible situation they're in and you know the, the scenes that are on the ground do get that claustrophobic atmosphere the fact that it's boiling hot it's pitch black they haven't got very much food um i don't think it really gets to grips with any of the political context like it could do again this was another thing that captain phillips did the fact that you know as um shipping continues to expand its reach it will increasingly verge into pirate waters and therefore people will be put at danger and therefore all the hazards associated with that this doesn't touch on anything there are some obligatory things about you know how the government are trying to paper over the situation doesn't really go anywhere um it's not really about that at the end of the day at the end of the day it's putting boots stuck underground do not minimize antonio banderas as pussy boots one legit of all from the sounds of it, from obviously someone that's not seen the film, it sounds very much like a sort of paint-by-numbers yeah, drama. Paint, that's it, paint-by-numbers, yeah. Uplifting drama, let's tick all the boxes and make sure we get it all sorted, and hey-ho, we've got a film. Yeah, and there, there, there is actually one relatively poetic visual moment in which they're all starving hungry, they all seem to be approaching death, and they, they, have a, they all hallucinate seemingly collectively about being met by their loved ones with plates of food 
and then that dissipates and then they find that they're being faced with little more than about you know uh, three grams of tuna that they have to try and make last for the whole day that's a relatively effective if somewhat unsubtle moment um you know it's it's fine and also it features one of the final scores from the late great james horner which sort of made me feel more sympathetic towards it because obviously james horner died last year and he actually delivers a relatively restrained score for this. James Horner wasn't often um, noted for his subtlety, but there's a lot of you know ethnic touches, you know, pan pipes and so on and so forth, and it, it, you know, it gets that burgeoning sense of hope quite well. So, a solid recommendation. Excellent, excellent. So that's a solid recommendation. Now we're going to move on to the film that um, we want nobody to talk about. So we're going to do it as briefly as humanly possible. Mm. Sean, tell us about Dirty Grandpa. Oh, dear. Right, okay. Yeah, so um, you might have heard about this. Do you heard the reviews about this? I have, yes. I've read more um, opinion pieces on the career of Robert De Niro than I have the actual reviews. Yeah, yeah. And that that shows you how dreadful it is, the fact that it has caused bloggers and journalists and writers to you know, not treat it as a film, but to, to go into some sort of existential crisis about where Robert De Niro is at the moment. The demise of a career. Yeah, that's how bad it is. It's got people thinking like that. So One of the greatest actors of his generation yes. has blown up his own career. Yeah, and yeah, right. So we'll, we'll get to... So he's, he's a, a widowed former army veteran whose wife has, of 40 years has died at the start of the movie. His, Zac Efron plays his grandson who is a lawyer who has repeatedly heard referring to something called SCC compliance, which the movie doesn't actually bother to explain, but it doesn't matter because it's one of those incredibly smug American comedies that basically says, hey, you know what, he's doing ver- he's doing legal jargon, therefore he's a stuffed shirt and a bit of a douche. And therefore he's intelligent. Well, well, the movie doesn't do that. The movie the movie openly sneers at the fact that he's got a career, one of the many ways that this oh. movie does. It's, it, it does that very crass shorthand thing. You know, he's talking like that, therefore... We're not we're not meant to align ourselves with him. What well, who we're meant to align ourselves with is Robert De Niro as the elderly guy who's lost his wife. And yet within a few seconds of screen time, um, he's back at home and Zac Efron walks in on him wanking in a chair. Yeah. You got that? Uh, with a box of tissues next to him. Some people have their process for moving on. I really wish I had a process of moving on from that. Um, I hear yeah. Robert De Niro's got a recommendation for you. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't want to know. Um, and, yeah, uh, and that's one of the many... I, I, I sort of got this slight creeping feeling that, oh, no. That's the tonal level we're Yeah, at. That, that's where we're going. And believe me, it actually gets worse from there. It actually that That's the high point, and it actually gets worse. So... What happens then is that Robert De Niro and Zac Efron hit the road to Florida because Zac Efron is getting married to the, the worst caricature of the high-maintenance blonde I've possibly ever seen in a movie. You know those sort of, like, those archetypes of women that you get in these really annoying American comedies now, which is, you know, they're blonde, they've got hair in a bob, they cut off the main character's conversations incessantly. And you think what is this rubbish? And he's getting married to her and he quite obviously doesn't love her and he has to go and pretend that he's taking Robert De Niro somewhere in Florida, which actually turns out to be somewhere else because Robert De Niro actually wants to go to Daytona Beach too, um, to fulfil, and in the words of his late wife, to fuck, 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 fuck. That's what he says. 
I'm sure that's a joke that lands extremely well in the film. It doesn't. It really doesn't. Um, and and so Zach Efron has to lie to his really uptight, demanding fiance about where they're going, whilst keeping an eye on Robert De Niro, who wants to jump into bed with the you know nearest nubile young woman that he can find while taking loads of those alcohol. Um, Zach Efron in one point learns to lighten up and gets high off his face on crack cocaine and alcohol and ends up in a compromising position involving a young child which is as funny as it sounds by compromising position I don't actually want to say I don't want to say what it is because it's so offensive I've mentioned this to you off air but Mm. I was sort of like thinking... Yeah, that diagram you drew was a little bit too far. Yeah, yeah, honestly. <laughs> and I was thinking just that should be called up in front of a human rights court. That should just not. That joke should not be allowed. It's reprehensible in the extreme. And this is the problem with the movie. This, As in keeping with many of these comedies nowadays, that it thinks a, a, a movie being puerile and being stupid is one thing. An unfunny, puerile, stupid movie is something else entirely. It's Poor Black Mall Cop 2. Well, yeah, I think this sinks even lower than Paul Blart Mall Cop 2, uh, just in terms of how you know, wretchedly offensive it is. Um, and you just think that it's actually been quite a long time since I've seen a movie that with this amount of sneering contempt towards all of its characters, not just Robert De Niro and Zac Efron's characters, every single person in this is tarred with the same shit brush. Uh, it's a movie that's got such a loathsome, such a loathsomely smug view of of people in general and in fact it's a movie that doesn't seem to know what human beings are it's almost like it's been directed by a pod person who did direct it out of interest it was dan mazer who directed i'll give it a year which is okay he's out he collaborated with sasha baron cohen in the past which might explain the sort of residual smugness and irritation of this i'm not the biggest fan of sasha baron cohen in the world you've hidden that one well yeah um, I wasn't a huge fan of Borat or Bruno, although they had their moments, but th- this is a lot worse than those. And I just think that, you know, it's just it's just not nice. It it doesn't... There's nothing... There's nothing cleansing about it. You know, when you, when you, when you see an offensive comedy, sometimes, you know, seeing an offensive comedy need not be a bad experience. You can often come out the other side thinking, oh, wow, that shocked me, but that was actually quite a cathartic, enjoyable experience. What would an example of that be? Um, I'm trying to think now, actually. Well, it's, it's just a, a decent comedy that has the capacity to be edgy. 40-Year-Old um, Virgin. 40-Year-Old Virgin's fine. Four Lions, okay? The the, the Chris, Chris Morris. Chris Masterpiece. It's, it takes a subject that you really shouldn't laugh at, and it crafts characters that you really that you really grow to care about, in spite of the fact they're jihadists. And it lampoons them absolutely brilliantly. That is one of the best comedies of the last 20 years, and it's absolutely brilliant. Um, and this, the Dirty Grandpa is just the you know I, I hate to make this comparison, but I will because I'll you know this is the level that the film's at. It's the equivalent of somebody going into the middle of a public place, uh, dropping their trousers and pleasuring themselves in public. I don't think that's a particularly good review. Um, well, the review's good. The film isn't. Well, yeah, but I meant the <laughs> the response to the film. I think there's there's certain points during during saying that you seem to get choked up yeah i know it's affected you at such a deep level that you absolutely despise it so much and and you've actually just reminded me of probably the most depressing thing of all which is maybe even more depressing than the film actually that when i went to see this and i paid to go and see this you're part of the problem yeah i know they're going to make dirty grandpa 2 as a result of me 
dirtier grandpa just <laughs> grandpa harder <laughs> Don't just don't. Um, there I'm throwing be, ideas out there now. No, aren't I? yeah, don't because Robert De Niro's agent might be listening and he might make him do it. Um, if you are Mr. Robert De Niro's agent, <laughs> stop. Um, there were people sat behind me in the cinema and they were laughing at it. And I actually wanted to turn around and tell them to shut up. I wanted to point out that this isn't actually funny. And I don't know whether it's a result of the fact I know where Robert De Niro... I don't know what I did. This, this, I'm not casting aspersions on the people sat behind me here. I don't know whether they just had a level of unawareness as to where Robert De Niro has come from as an actor. Because believe me, that compounds the despair. If you know Robert De Niro's history and you know that he has come from something like The Godfather or Taxi Driver or Raging Bull, fast forward and it brings you to this. Even King of Comedy, which King is of, yes. a great Robert De Niro comedy. Yeah. yeah. one I would, I would say that might be his best performance, actually. And I know you weren't as much of a fan of Midnight Run. I would say Midnight Run is a masterpiece. I can understand it. Yeah. Um, and even if you don't like Midnight Run, it's a masterpiece compared to this. Um, I think Movie 43 is probably a masterpiece compared to this. It's... Mm, it's on the same level as movie 43 that's how bad it is in terms of you know great actors well a great actor robert de niro and zac efron i think he's getting a relatively easy ride in this review yeah well he is yeah despite the fact that he probably suffers through the worst joke in it but yeah well zac efron i can take or leave zac efron i mean he's done stupid comedies before he did bad neighbors which was rubbish he did that awkward moment which was rubbish you know i just don't he did the the Richard Linklater film Me and Orson Welles yeah that's true that was true that was quite a while ago though wasn't it yeah but he's done great work yeah he has he's capable of great work Robert De Niro has done great work well that goes without saying (laughs) and it's just like you look you look at where Robert De Niro has also done Meet the Fockers this is worse than Meet the Fockers it's worse than Grudge Match it's worse than The Big Wedding (laughs) that's how bad it is am I conveying this well enough it's just I think it's best we leave it. I'm just... And we leave we leave I, Dirty Grandpa. We never I'm mention appalled. it again. Let's put it into a suitcase and write and, Timbuktu on it and send it away. And you know you know, the worst thing about it is it's actually done quite well at the UK box office. Which is probably partly your a result fault. of yeah, me. Yeah. yeah. It's all your fault. Yeah. So, let's never, ever talk about that again. No, no, I don't want to talk about it again. It might come up in the worst of films of the year oh, review, yeah. but you know that's later on in the year, so hopefully everyone will have forgotten it by then, unless we're talking about Dirty Grandpa 2. So let's move on to slightly happier things. I know you're slightly... This is a film we've both seen, and we fall onto slightly different sides of what I think is the same coin. Um, oh, we're doing a two-face analogy there. No, but... <laughs> Two-Face has a double-headed coin. What's wrong with you? Oh, okay, fair enough. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I was talking to the fonts of the fonts of wisdom here. Well, I am, actually. Yeah, I'll take that. <laughs> I've been called a lot worse in my time. <laughs> so um, this this is Youth. So this is uh, Paolo Sorrentino's latest film. Didn't he win the um, Best Foreign Language Oscar? For The Great Beauty, yeah, in 2013. Excellent. I'm glad you had that to mind because I didn't. You, um, you notice how I did that without notes? Well, yeah. I just, well, wanted, I just wanted to point that out to people listening. Well done. I'm doing everything without notes, in case you can't quite tell. All right, yeah, fine. So um, this stars uh, Michael Caine, Harvey Keitel, Paul Dano, and Rachel Weiss. Weiss? Weiss? Weiss. Rachel Weiss, I think, yeah. Mrs. Daniel Craig. There we go. Rachel Liev. <laughs> <laughs> so um, 
this, I mean, you've got a relatively cold open to the film where um, Michael Caine sat there. He's, uh, we find out throughout the course of his first conversation that he's a master conductor that just flat out will not do it anymore for personal reasons. He's being asked to perform for the Queen his set of simple songs. Um, at one point during this review, so consider your response. At one point, I'm going to ask you what you thought of the songs because you're more the classical music expert than I am. Okay. Obviously, with your soundtracky stuff, and so that, um, that was done with an accompanying hand wave. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah that dismissive thing. hand wave. Yeah, <laughs> soundtrack stuff. Right. So I, we were talking about this earlier, and you you seemed to be quite surprised that I was I sounded quite positive about it. It's not necessarily that I was positive; it was that um, more that I I appreciated it. Um, it flew off into flights of whimsy. We've got oddly floating monks are they floating are they not floating we seem to be set in a spa at the foot of the alps um where we've got harvey keitel playing mick boyle and uh michael kane playing fred ballinger um harvey keitel's character is an aging film director and as i've mentioned um, michael kane's fred is uh, a former conductor uh both are being held as, as geniuses in their own fields and we have uh, the friendship between the two of them that's lasted around about 60 plus years. They seem to go back a long, long way. Um, there's flights of fancy, there's whimsy. They discuss existentialism, what it means to be old, what it means to forget things. There's a particularly beautiful scene um, where Michael Caine is walking to just walking out on his own, uh, seemingly trying to forget things. He sits down and he starts conducting the cows. I thought that was a wonderful scene. What did you think of that? Yeah, it was it was a nice scene. I think I think the whole film is a flight of fancy, really. And really, the issues that I had with the Great Beauty, which I did think was overrated, carried over into this. I think you're a bit more sympathetic towards it than I am. I admired the film to an extent, like you did. Um, I think you might have liked it a bit more than me. The, the the issue that I have with it is, as with the Great Beauty, the the visual artifice and the visual splendiferousness of it, and the metaphor- how do you spell that? Um, SP. Oh, do you really want me to do that? No, no, no. Okay. Um, d- Email it to me later, and we'll put it up in the uh, <laughs> the exact uh, description of this podcast. Okay. Yeah. Along with Dirty Grandpa too. Well, um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so the visual artifice of it gets in the way of the emotion, and I, uh, this was a problem that I had with the great. The thing is with the Great Beauty, it was it was an odyssey around Rome. Uh, you know. In, in all of its, you know, glory, you know, high society parties, the Trevi fans and everything. But the problem was I didn't actually care about what was going on. It looked very nice. And the same problem threatens to happen with this. It didn't quite, it wasn't quite as problematic as The Great Beauty because I think Michael Caine is actually very, very good in this. He's fantastic. Yeah. He, uh, to me, the, the film lives and dies on his performance mm. and his relationship with Harvey Keitel's character. Yeah. And I think that they both nail it on the head. I mean, Harvey Keitel is basically playing Harvey Keitel, but I do think that Michael Caine is is playing Fred extremely well. Um, he's a character that he does bring to life. Yeah, because it's the two of them ruminating on, you know, what constitutes youth. Is it a sense of spirit? Is it a sense of physical appearance? And they are in this Alpine Lodge where you have these very, very weird, surrealistic sort of slow motion tableaus of like people in pools, people walking past, and these these are people who seem to be consciously trying to recapture youth in some sort of way yeah and, and they're at the center of it and uh, about that i mean there were several shots of um randomly naked women both young and old yeah 
I didn't quite understand why. I didn't know why they wanted to be naked and why the director felt the need to accentuate, look at this, the naked women. Well, I think that's probably because he's an Italian director, to be honest, if I'm being glib. Um, but I think deeper than that, I think that... Well, that was a problem for me, that's all I'm getting at. Yeah, yeah, it did, it did feel gratuitous, and I think the whole film feels you know, gratuitous as an artistic experiment. I wanted the direction itself to take a step back. I wanted the film, like Spotlight, actually, I wanted the film to be more discreet and allow the actors to speak for themselves. You've got Michael Caine and Harvey Keitel in your movie. Stop trying to impose yourself, impose yourself aggressively on it when you've got two great actors like that just let them let them do the heavy lifting and Rachel Weisz and Paul Dano as well well uh, on the subject of Rachel Weisz there's yeah. uh, a particular scene which is a, a close-up shot of her face where she is basically talking straight to camera mm. for it's clearly one shot and it's a very extended take um, that is such a highly emotional scene and she plays it absolutely perfectly. And that's a great scene because, again, there's no visual guff around it. Like you say, it's just her face. And Rachel Weisz is turning into it. Well, she was a great actress, but she's got really, really good in the last few years. She was obviously in The Lobster last year. She was really good in that. And she's clearly finding these quite edgy and mercurial roles to which she's actually really well suited. Well, without sounding like a pig, um, it seems that Hollywood, uh, women at her age... They tend to get cast aside a lot. Well, yeah. So she the is finding, yeah. So she is finding the roles which suit her, and she is really, really good at. Yeah, the the roles that are sort of just on the fringes of the mainstream, I and mean, you've got to admire a big movie star like her doing a film like this because it's very, very odd. Although one would assume that it's the opportunity to work with Paolo Sorrentino and Michael Caine that attracted her to this. Um, but yeah, I thought, you know. It, it was fine. I thought Michael Caine held my attention. I thought it was flagrantly self-indulgent and far too long, um, way too long. That was another problem I had with The Great Beauty as well. I didn't. Didn't you? I didn't. I, it w- its length was never a problem for me. The fact that it was um, self-indulgent, that slightly bothered me, but it was, like you say, a, a flight of whimsy. It was a, a discussion on the, the dichotomy of, of age and youth, and... One thing that was a slight problem was um, Paul Dano seemed to have walked in from a different film. but um, See, I didn't think that. I thought Paul Dano gave a sort of a relatively understated performance like the rest of them. There is one scene where he dresses up as a certain historical figure, let's say. It was that that particularly... Yeah. Which is emblematic of the sort of the nonsense that's allowed to clutter up the film. It doesn't add anything. It's just like Sorrentino just thought, right, well, I can do it, so I will. And I was sort of thinking, well, no. But what did you make of its soundtrack? Yeah, it's, I, so the film in itself is building and building and building towards these simple songs, and will we ever get to hear them? And yeah. you know, without spoiling too many things, you you get to hear them. What well, do well, you think? Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's been Oscar nominated for um, it's it's um, song it's song number three, I believe it's called, isn't it? Simple song number three. It's yeah. been Oscar nominated for that. And, you know, people people were expecting youth to actually clean up at the Oscar nominations. In fact, it's only got one. But yeah, it's it it the music when it arrives has that well it's it's the emotional awakening of Kane's character isn't it because he's composed it he doesn't want to return to that aspect of his life um and when he does it, it, you know a classical music has can take on various you know human forms you know it can be turbulent it can be elegiac it can be smooth it can be disturbing and it's about where his character is and in fact actually I was quite I was quite touched when you see Kane in front of Kane's character um, in front of the orchestra, uh, not not or not in front of the orchestra, I should say. <laughs> Shall I say it's uh, 
it's a dream sequence. Give me the spade. It's really, Just give me the spade. Uh, so I feel I'll hit myself over the head with it. Wow. Um, but it, it reminded me. Uh, I can't. I couldn't not say that without without saying this next bit. Um, but Michael Caine was famously a friend of John Barry who obviously wrote the Bond scores, they they roomed together, they were flatmates together at one point. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was one shot, actually, of Michael Caine. Which he didn't look too dissimilar from John Barry. And I thought that was quite touching because obviously him and him and Kane, his and Kane's career were bound up. Obviously, Barry scored The Ipcrest File and several other Kane films as well. And that, that was quite poignant. I thought, oh, it's it's like... And it's lovely to see Michael Caine playing a substantial role again yeah and a man of his age rather than being harry brown you know? yeah well, well i liked harry brown i liked harry brown yeah. but you've got to consider this is a man he's what in his 70s yeah you, you kind of have to play that you know whereas harry brown was very much almost a younger man in an old man's body yeah and just a, a man reminiscing on life and one of the comparison i did want to make with um with youth is the before trilogy because you've got two people just wandering around whimsically discussing existentialism, which I thought was a, a nice little uh, comparison of the two. Obviously, it's not anything like as good as those three films, mm. um, but I just thought it was a, a, a very interesting comparison. And we got all the way through the review, and we didn't do one single bloody Michael Caine impression. <laughs> or I can do the Brighton voice. From, with the greatest respect, Master Wayne. Perhaps this is a man you don't. No, no, the, we, we, no, no, done, finished. You look despairing. That's well, what I look like when I watch Dirty Grandpa. I thought we were never going to mention that again. I'm sorry. It's it's sort of like it's like it's it's in my head now. It's, it's like, like herpes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. The equivalent of watching herpes. You yeah. have herpes. Yeah, as a result of watching that, I needed a shower after watching that. Mm. I need to wear a hazmat suit. Anyway. <laughs> One other release that is coming out uh, this coming Friday, um, so it's not quite out yet. We've both been uh, privy enough to go and see this. Uh, I think it's one of those things that they're building up the opening weekend, aren't they? Yes. Um, it's been out and it's kind of not out, but it is out. They're cheating when it comes to the box office, yeah. Well, yeah. So um, this is the adaptation of the absolutely stunning children book series uh, written by R.L. Stein of Goosebumps. Um I'm quite surprised at the the whole premise of the film. Um, the premise is that uh, the monsters from the books can actually escape and run riot. And um, to me, it would have made a lot more sense to make an episodic sort of film um, where you've got the, the actual adaptations of the books because you've got such a rich history there to, to mine. Um, but anyway, this is the decision they've taken with the the ghost bun, go, goosebumps. I was going to say Ghostbusters. Ghostbumps. <laughs> ghostbumps. With the Goosebumps franchise. So there we go. Um, so that's uh, basically the, the story of it. That's the, the brief premise. We've got a teenager that stumbles across the fact that this can happen. And the new uh, arrival in his town, we should say. That's important. That is very yeah, important. Yeah. And um, he, he teams up with uh, a, a brand new character who uh, he manages to... to introduced to women for the first time that's uh that's quite entertaining he comes to his house all suited up which i, I very much appreciated is so, he his wingman am i your wingman are you my wingman i think i'd be yours wouldn't i okay fair. <laughs> thank you <laughs> i'd be the zach and you'd be my champ okay yeah, yeah you'd be the guy in the suit and i'd be the guy that does everything oh thanks <laughs> oh at least i look nice yeah 
Well, yeah, you are wearing your suit now, so yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. you do exactly. suit up for our podcast. Yeah, 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 I'll try. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, so this this film obviously starring uh, Jack Black. He's got Dylan Minnette, who I thought was very much like a young Channing Tatum. He did look like Channing Tatum, mm. actually, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. I was just a bit like, I've seen you before. Yeah. So um, there's that. Uh, we've also got uh, Odea Rush. What's she been in? Do you know her? I don't know Odea cool. Rush now. She was a new face Let's call her a newcomer. Mm. Um, Amy Ryan's in it. Yeah, she played the mother. Oh, yes. Yeah, but most recently seen in Bridge of Spies. Yes. So, um, just on the film, I mean, they've very clearly decided, this is uh, director Rob Letterman, has very much decided to not concentrate on the whole spooky aspect of it. It's not a Halloween sort of film, although they did miss a trick by not releasing it at Halloween. Um, I I would sort of disagree with that, but anyway, go on. the, The main interest of the film is to not, be spooky the main interest of the film is to be funny and be a, a family comedy um and i think that it does that job really really well so well in fact that it kind of papers over any other cracks um yes the cgi is ropey yes it's not quite as scary as it probably should be but the fact it is just an enjoyable fun ride you, you let it go and um i thoroughly enjoyed it far more than i th- it was anticipating to and i would love to see jack black doing a lot more of these what were your thoughts? Well, I think the first thing, the most important thing to establish is what are our thoughts on the Goosebumps books themselves? Because they were really important to me when I was younger. They were part of my formative reading experience. I read all of them. They were all I read. That and the yeah. Beano was yeah. what I read. Yeah, it was. Uh, they, were, they were really good. I mean, if anything, they were the things that introduced me to horror because you know, the Goosebumps books, you know, they were funny and they were, you know, they're very light. They were only about 120 pages each, but they were... They were pre- high literature, yeah, well, yeah, well, yeah. To an eight-year-old, they are. I mean, yeah, you know, if, I, if any, I wasn't being yeah, facile. <laughs> yeah, if any, if anything has the ability to introduce horror to a young audience, brilliant. I'm all for that. And they were creepy when, when you know, relatively creepy, mildly so, when they put their mind to it. But obviously, the main emphasis was that you know they were meant to be rollicking and entertaining. And I think that I agree with you. I think the movie does actually a pretty good job of honouring the tone of the books. And I was worried going in because I saw that it was from Rob Letterman. He of who, Gulliver's Travels. Yeah, he made an absolute horse his arse of Gulliver's Travels I mean goodness me in which there's a reference to in this film if you remember oh no I didn't spot that there, there's the gnomes. oh yeah when he when he gets tied up mm. by all the gnomes yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I um, thought that was very on the nose and unnecessary yeah yeah that was a bit unnecessary I mean this doesn't do the same caterwauling calamity to Goosebumps as he did to Gulliver's Travels or obviously Gulliver's Travels established literary classic Goosebumps not so much um, it's important to put it in perspective it's the Stephen King for kids yeah yeah and I think that the books are really important and I think that it does a pretty decent job of getting I mean it does that the, the, the books I mean owed, owed to some extent a lot to like the likes of Joe Dante they're always the same conventions carried over in the books the idea of the kid coming to a new town spooky house next door he meets the girl next door the father played by Jack Black is the author that's all classic stuff from the books they nailed that they Mm -hmm. got that absolute spot and again it's that very Joe Dante-esque you know it's suburbia but chaos is about to be unleashed in Mm. suburbia Um, and in fact I mean one of the my main problem is I agree with you it's funny I think Jack Black does launches into it with real verve as do the the young cast members. I thought were all really really likable. Well, I was trying to think mm. of, of absolutely great Jack, or even good Jack Black films. Oh, he's done he's done a few. I mean, like it's oh, a struggle. It's hard. Well, High Fidelity is terrific. High Fidelity is the high S- school of rock. rock. Yeah. Um, no, he's, he's he's done a few. Bernie also with Richard Linklater. Yeah. That's probably his best performance. I'd say it's it's more of a it's a dramatic comic performance rather than a straight up comic role. 
But he's, he's, done, he's, done, he's done some crackers. Now you're struggling, though, surely. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I think Shallow Howl's all right. I think Shallow Howl's okay. You're wrong, but okay. <laughs> um, the, the problem that I have with this is not in Jack Black's performances or in any of the performances of the cast or in the humour of it, the fact that, you know, it zips along and, you know, it makes you laugh and the fact that it, you know, the fact that it's clearly out to engage an audience with, you know, monsters of all different shapes and sizes. My problem isn't that. My problem is that... It, it's it lacks any sort of menace and i think that it doesn't need to be it doesn't need to be terrifying obviously because that wouldn't be appropriate for the audience a little bit of menace would have gone a long way here i think slappy does have that menace to it yeah he, he and whenever he's on screen slappy is obviously the probably the most famous character from any of the goosebumps stories the ventriloquist dummy yeah i mean he's the one that i remember from reading i think there were there were three stories with him in it there, were, there were a couple of sequels in the goosebumps saga yeah yeah and they obviously realized rl stein realized how popular he was and yeah when he's on screen he's voiced by black incidentally black does a really good job with the voice um, when he's on screen, it's great. When it gets to like giant prey manses and werewolves and shopping malls, I was thinking, mm, it feels a bit bloodless and it doesn't it doesn't feel quite as engaging in the scares department as it should do. And I think the reason why I'm making I'm making this point is that the day before I went to see this uh, on film four, they were showing the Joe Dante film, The Hole. Have you seen that? Wasn't that out a couple of years ago? Yes, and it's really underrated and really good. I haven't. It's one that's definitely on my list to catch up with. Though. Yeah, and it's a 12A film, and it's really scary. It's properly scary. The amount of threat in it, there's a clown doll in it that comes to life. The idea is that kids move to a new house, new town. There's a hole in their basement that's padlocked. They open it. Their worst fears are unleashed from within the hole. And the young kid's man- manifestation of his fears is this is this clown that, that jumps around everywhere. And it's properly petrifying. And I think that what Joe Dante did there is he did a really good job of walking the line between something that's borderline inappropriate for its audience, and yet he knew just where to draw it back. Whereas I don't think Goosebumps... Although Goosebumps comes up to the mark in terms of the humour, I don't think it comes up to the mark in terms of actually doing justice to the actual threat that's implied in, in the premise. I would be inclined to disagree with you. Would you really? I do. I, yeah. I genuinely think that it, it does have that level of threat in there that it needs, and I think that it's got a, an actually really compelling villain mm. um, in the in, in Slappy. So, um, I mean, I completely understand where you're coming from, but I don't necessarily agree with it. Uh, you surprised me. Well, there we go. <laughs> so one other thing I wanted to mention is the the nod to R.L. Stein actually in the film. Um, he plays a character, uh, just an incidental, almost like Michael Bond. Oh, yes, I saw him Yeah, walking past. Yeah, yeah Almost yeah. like Michael Bond in Paddington. Yes. Um, which I, I really thoroughly enjoyed. I, I do like yeah. getting those uh, those little things. Yeah, I, I, thought, I thought it was fun. I thought it was nostalgic. I like the fact that you don't, you don't get a lot of movies like this nowadays. I mean, the young adult market is cornered by the likes of Divergent and The Hunger Games. You don't get these relatively sort of innocent horror comedies for families nowadays. And that's a real shame. That seems to have fallen by the wayside, I think. This was exactly what I said when I was watching it to my other half. Um, and I just, I really, really... When I was sort of on side, when it, it won me over, I thought, right, brilliant. I want more of these types of films because you used to get your Goonies, you used to get your gremlins yeah. you get your joe dante films whereas yeah. now the burbs even yes well i love the burbs that was on over the weekend actually brilliant film yeah i've got it on my so recorder yeah. for, um for, for a rewatch it's been a long old time yeah um but i know you're quite keen to discuss something else about this film so 
For those that are not quite aware of this uh, this part of the podcast, Sean has a massive love of a soundtrack or two. And uh, one thing that he particularly wanted to discuss this week was the soundtrack for Goosebumps. Yeah, uh, composed by Danny Elfman, who we, we mentioned then that, that Goosebumps feels something like something of a homecoming. It has that nostalgic air to it in that it harkens back to all the films that we grew up with from like the 80s and the 90s. Don't tarnish me with your brush. Okay, I'll tarnish me with my brush then. Do you not like one to be tarnished with my brush? I think we're going back to dirty <laughs> grandpa territory. <laughs> anyway, that's enough about brushes. Um, but uh, it's, um, I think that the movie is a nostalgic era and that carries over into Danny Elfman's score because Danny Elfman emerged in the 1980s as you know, a, a, an incredibly creative and madcap composer. He was almost Tim Burton's mate. Well, yeah, he's Tim, he's Tim Burton's muse. And, uh, and the score for Goosebumps really gets back to not so much the, the, the lush... Edward Scissorhands, Black Beauty style of Danny Elfman. It gets back to that sort of madcap, slightly crazed air of Danny Elfman that you've got in Beetlejuice, where you've got a sense that the score is just on the verge of running out of control and it's it's very, very funny with it and it accentuates the humour of it. And you get these incredibly frenetic, complex rhythms in Danny Elfman's comedy writing. I mean, the, movie, the Goosebumps movie opens with a, with a credit sequence in which you have the music playing. And straight away I was thinking, I knew it was Danny Elfman who'd done it anyway, obviously. I, I didn't. Didn't you? No. No, no. Um, and I thought, okay, I'm back in the Danny Elfman territory of Mars Attacks or Beetlejuice or Dick Tracy or something like that. And it had that. It, when you, when, you know, it's weird that there is such a thing as composer casting, there is such a thing as the right composer for the job. And I think this was perfect. You know, when you get the right composer who can bring the right sort of tone to a movie and who can create certain associations in the minds of an audience it will make the film better than what it probably would have been and i think danny elfman brings all of this quirky you know fantastical fairy tale you know horror comedy for family history with him and you get this you know slightly deranged air to the music that does give over to actually to some very very lovely you know fulsome material i mean particularly you look at the um the way that the relationship between Dylan Minnette and Odea Rush's character develops. You look at how the music captures that. That calls to mind Danny Elfman's more, you know, attractive material on the likes of Edward Scissorhands, which you know I would consider his masterpiece easily. It's interesting because that brings to mind that the the scene of Edward Scissorhands where Edward is pulling apart the ice and yes. Um, Winona Ryder's character is just walking through it and that music's playing over the top. Yeah, yeah, and then the, 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 the use of the very sort of glacial, innocent choir has become a Danny Elfman trademark. There are moments of that in Goosebumps, but mainly it's about those sense of like, you often get scenes where it sounds like, you know, a trombone is being thrashed within an inch of its life. You think, goodness me, that must have been really, really hard for the brass sections to do that and to keep that level of energy up throughout that, that particular, whatever sequence it is. Um, yeah, I thought, you know, it was... It, it might not be especially new by Danny Elfman's standards, but frankly, I didn't want anything new. I like I, any Danny Elfman score that reminds me of his past triumphs is good enough for me, and it works brilliantly in the film. That's the key thing, isn't it? Yeah. So, um, so that was the Goosebumps review. I mean, that's a and as far as I'm concerned, that's an overwhelmingly positive review. Mm. Um, uh, for the film, uh, I think you're on a similar playing field. I I, I like the film. I think we you... don't do stars. No. But what would you give it if we did? I'd give it a solid three. Okay, I'd give it a solid four. Because <laughs> <laughs> we're not on the same page, are we? <laughs> we're about a star out, but there we go. Should we do three and a half? Should we compromise? No. 
Why not? Because I'm right. Well, but, well yeah, but we can we can approach it in the middle. I, I, you come down one, I go up one. No. So we're both changing. I'm still right though. Oh, fine. You can fine. give the score a three. <laughs> oh, do you need the dismissive hand wave again? Yeah, scores a <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, the score would get a four. Okay, then. The so score is great. So it's a total average of four. <laughs> That's how it works. Well, no, hang on, eight. No, Man does maths four. on podcast. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Actually, well, three. We three and a bit. It wouldn't be four. The average. Four. So, um, <laughs> one other thing we like to talk about on this podcast is some of the latest TV. Um, unfortunately, due to all of the filmic watching in the last week, um, I've not actually managed to, to corner anything. But oh, when, hang on. Have you switched places with me? Yes. Yes. I um I spent my evenings watching. Uh, the films we reviewed youth goosebumps spotlight and um, well, funny i went to the cinema to watch a lot of those but then i know you are in a different situation to me i went to the cinema to watch a lot of them but um and plus i am in a different situation yeah. <laughs> so um but shauna shockingly has uh, has actually put uh, a netflix subscription to use yes. you've been uh, you've been catching up with what i mentioned last week making a murderer and finished jessica jones now give us uh, your overviews on what you've seen uh what do you want me to do first jessica jones yeah um yeah well i i finished it and i thought i don't think it's up to the level of daredevil it didn't have the knockout emotional impact of daredevil because i don't think that the characters with the exception of jessica and kilgrave played by david tennant i don't played think brilliantly ca- by david tennant yeah i i you know it didn't quite have the same richness as daredevil um i think what daredevil managed to do brilliantly was to merge emotion and action i think this has more of a more of a problem doing that and i think at the end of jessica jones it just felt like an ending whereas with daredevil i was like oh wow i, I actually can't wait to see where Season they go two. with that yeah. yeah um and i think that are they filming jessica jones series two right now or are they have they done it i think it's been announced i'm not sure whether they um yeah. whether they're filming it right now uh but it it all is going to tie in with the defenders series i know um daredevil series two is coming out 25th of march um funnily enough the same day as batman v superman yeah Marvel and Manor DC. from heaven for comic book fans. <laughs> well, I just love the fact that Marvel and DC... There's someone clearly at Marvel that's looked at that date and gone, you know what will piss DC off? Yeah. Well, you know, there was a story uh, about how, um, in terms of social media interest, DC are outpacing Marvel by about 500%, apparently, thanks to Batman v Superman and Suicide Squad. Well, I think DC also have a bit of a leg up as well in that they've got mm. their weekly shows. They've got... Um, Arrow, they've got The Flash, they've got Legend of Tomorrow that's coming soon. Um, we've got uh, Supergirl, as well as even Gotham. That's a, Whereas Marvel have, what, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. plus the Netflix shows. I think the, the key difference there is that Netflix shows are all dumped at once. They don't have the continuous ongoing social media engagement. I mean, when I'm watching Daredevil or I'm watching Jessica Jones, I don't want to go on social media because I know someone will have finished them before me and then... Spoil know, it. Ruin it. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, that is Jessica Jones. What have you thought thus far of making a murderer? Uh, I really liked it. Uh, I should say, just to make you jealous, that I was um, watching. I watched the first two episodes of this whilst I was doing some writing for um, a different website. So, oh. thank you. <laughs> uh, it's called Den of Geek. Have you heard of them? No. More for you. Um, yeah, they're, they're a really, really good website, and um, they like. I have yes. I you do. don't need to whore yourself yeah, anymore. Yeah, they really, they really like what I did. I did like the twenty-five underrated scores of the nineties, and now I'm doing the underrated scores of the eighties. Anyway, oh sorry, where was I? Go and check that on Den of Geek. They're re- they're actually really, really yeah, they good. are really, really good. Yeah, I'm I'm not gonna just sort. Of, it's one of those things that when the writers in the room, you don't necessarily want to 
blow smoke, but um, they are really informative, oh, please really do. good. So um, yeah, someone yeah. has to. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, making a murderer. So um, what's the story? Stephen Avery, his name is, isn't it? Is that right? Yeah, from Manitowoc County. Yes. Uh, yeah. Nice, nicely remembered. Wow, you complimented me earlier for remembering something that was well remembered. I've seen all ten episodes. <laughs> you mate. know. All right. What? 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 Um, what state is it? Uh, Wisconsin. Yes. Yes. Nice. Famous for cheese and beer. And now making a murder. Making a murderer. Yeah. Uh, I believe, was it where, was that where? Isn't it weird, right? This is what I thought when I watched all of the series, and I thought no one else that I was that I was aware of watching it would get this reference. Doesn't mm. everyone sound like they're from Fargo? They, they, I, I thought exactly the same thing. Like, yeah, we can't believe that nothing happened. Oh, I can't do it. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, 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 it really wound me up to begin yeah. with. That his, his mum sounds so much like yeah. um, Francis Fargo. McDormand, yeah. And I was just like, yeah. oh my yeah. God. And I mentioned this yeah. to, to my other half, and um, she just didn't, didn't understand <laughs> didn't what I was talking about. Yeah, he's always oh, kind of funny looking. Oh, just in the usual roundabout kind of way. <laughs> yeah, they did sound like that. Um, no, I think it's really, really gripping so far. So this story is that he went to prison for a crime that he didn't commit. True story. Uh, he was in prison for what? Eighteen years was it? Eighteen years. Eighteen years. He comes out of prison. He's rebuilding his life. Uh, this is this is only up to episode two, by the way. This um, is actually an episode one. Episode one, yeah. So people who haven't seen it at all just turn down for the next couple of minutes. Well. Uh, if you haven't seen it what the hell's wrong with you well yeah well clearly there was something wrong with me because I was only compelled to watch this last night obviously it's got nothing to do with pressure from you well yeah it's clearly because you, you listened to the podcast again from last week yeah, yeah, and yeah. Um, my my stunning review of it uh, managed to convince you well there was a review of it yeah so um, yeah <laughs> shall I continue Anyway, yes, yeah, so making a murderer is about. <laughs> so he gets out of prison after being in eighteen years. He's rebuilding his life. His wife has divorced him whilst he's in prison. I felt really sorry for him, and that he's starting to. He's working at um, it's a scrapyard, isn't it? Is it scrapyard? Avery scrapyard. Avery yeah. scrapyard. And then, uh, almost, almost in a one of those really weird cosmic events, a woman goes missing about a year after he's come out of prison, and the police automatically seem to finger him for doing it. We're back in dirty grandpa territory. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for that. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, well, I've lost my train of thought now. Okay, oh, so... Just, um, p- please so, pick up. <laughs> so this is the, the, the great thing. I mean, the, the, what you've just explained is roughly done throughout the first episode. And then, you know, we see that he's trying to rebuild his life. Then we cut to black and it says, have you got a body? No. But Stephen Avery's in custody. Yes. Credits. And it's like, I need to watch that next episode. Yes. And that's what these guys do really, really well. Um, one thing that I did mention last week is that it is important to remember that it is there as a piece of entertainment. And um, you can't necessarily... There's a lot of things written online that, that are very much on one side or the other. And you don't have all the facts. You're not in the courtroom. This is just something I want to implore. Yeah, well, it's a documentary, isn't it? I mean, all, all skilled documentaries will manipulate you to one extent or the other. I mean, the way I, that I stand with it at the moment is that, I, blimey, I absolutely hate the local police force. There's a piece of CCTV footage in which Stephen Avery appears to be being bullied into giving a confession for something, and you're smiling, so clearly that's going to have some sort of repercussions later on. Well, I know what's yeah, coming. Yeah, you know what happens. Uh, and I was horrified. Um, yeah, it was weird, actually. It reminded me a lot of... Did you see that... Um, British series from about seven or eight years ago called Red Riding. Um, yes, um, the uh, it was an episodic thing, yes. wasn't it? And um, David David adapted from David Nichols. Paddy book. Considine was in it. Yes, and yes. Andrew Garfield. Yeah, I um, I was studying at the time. Um, 
and we used that as uh, a, a case study for um, one of my modules in university. Ah, yeah, yeah. Really, really dark and compelling series about police corruption in the north of England that's really horrifying. And it actually, Making a Murderer has reminded me a lot of that, the fact that it doesn't matter where you are, police corruption exists, or does it? Or does it? <laughs> um, but I couldn't help but make that comparison. I thought, yeah, it, it, it drew to mind all of those feelings that I had whilst watching Red Riding, the fact that, you know, putting faith in in authority figures including the police is often very very difficult um and that was uh, as we've seen from spotlight as well to bring yeah yeah exactly circle. yeah yeah and uh, it's just as difficult putting faith in robert de niro now although he's not an authority figure anymore um and i was i was really really impressed with with making a murderer so, so far anyway. we will await your uh, your finale and uh, just a, a briefly on what you think at that point that will just about do it for the Culture Mirrors podcast for this week. Don't forget you can uh, follow us on Twitter. You can uh, follow us on Facebook. Uh, we're at Culture Mirrors or Culture Mirrors on, uh, on Facebook. Uh, you obviously know the website. That's where we are. Um, SoundCloud is where this podcast will be uploaded. Um, if you want links to download each of the files, then um, you can do that using our Google Drive. And um, you can also subscribe to us using the uh, certain Apple app for, uh, for your podcasts. Um, there are instructions on how to do so on the um pin to the top of the facebook page can i do some plugs please is it for your whoring yes yeah my whoring plugs so if people want to check out my writing i write for cineworld so you can check out cineworld.co.uk forward slash blog uh you can also check out my 25 underrated scores of the 90s on den of geek i also do film school writing for flickering myth and mfiles.co.uk and I also have been recording a series of podcasts for Black Hole Cinema about film composers. So the latest episode on Ennio Morricone is up. So look up Black Hole Cinema on Google or on Twitter. You can find them on the podcast hosting service Acast. You notice how there's there's a distinct lack of cultural mirrors right in there. Just to turn that on. Well, um, we're doing that. Well, this is us. Well, oh, you're, you're offended. No, you can also no. check us out on cultural mirrors. Well, there we go. <laughs> So that will just about do the, the podcast. Um, oh, didums. Coming up for the uh, the next uh, next pod that we'll have, um, there's quite a whole host of films coming out. Um, so what is coming out over the next couple of weeks? Well, we have the return of Blue Steel in Zoolander 2. Mm. Wait, sorry, what was that? Mm. What, are you not a fan of Zoolander? No. What? I don't find Ben Stiller funny. Well, yeah, I don't find him funny in anything, but to not like Zoolander is just wrong. I, I kind of disagree, but there we go. Do you like Dodgeball? Not really. What? Oh my goodness me, we found a weak point here. No, they're just a bit bawdy and a bit over the top and over Dirty Grandpa is bought believe me, Dodgeball looks like Citizen Kane compared to Dirty Grandpa. I'm sure. <laughs> so have, I, have I reiterated that point enough? Yes, I guess. <laughs> um, yeah, and uh, Deadpool is also out as well, which no doubt you're looking forward to. I can't wait. It looks like it genuinely looks like it's gonna be the best comic book film we've had so far. Wow. Genuinely high praise. Honestly. That's obviously taken out the Chris Nolan Batman trilogy. Well, yeah, we, we can ignore The Dark Knight Rises because that wasn't very good. Well, okay, that takes out the first two. But um, <laughs> but other than those, I mean, when you're now looking at the latest slew of, of Marvel and, and coming up DC films, it looks stunning. It looks like something very, very different that they've done in the past. So I can't wait. And obviously Ryan Reynolds returning to the character that he played in X-Men Origins Wolverine and righting those wrongs because that film was an absolute travesty. As was Green Lantern, which he was in, so he <laughs> yeah, does need to... Uh, you always forget about that one, yeah, yeah. So he does need to uh, to, to bring something. I, I genuinely think he's going to with this. Yeah. So what else have we got out? We've got Dad's Army 
come in the uh, the adaptation of the uh, the classic 70s sitcom mm. we've got pride and prejudice and zombies based on uh, the the book that was written several Mash-up years book, ago yeah, yeah. Well, yeah um concussion will smith doing an accent um we've got the remake of point break and yeah well how dare they how dare they well yeah and we've got the brian cranston vehicle trumbo um which takes a look at uh, golden age hollywood do you think that the pitch to that is he went in his breaking bad and went i am the one who writes do you think he said that no fair enough you just offered him a load of blue stuff and they just said yes to what everyone did. <laughs> yeah that'll work <laughs> That is the Culture Mirrors podcast for this week. You're looking at me like you've got something else to say. Just, just one more thing. We should say that on the next podcast, we will. I think we will also be talking about the BAFTAs. Yes, the, the next podcast will be happening after that, so we will cover that uh, in in that show. Um, obviously, Stephen Fry hosting, so we'll yes. have a, a, a slightly more comprehensive roundup than normal mm. um, when it comes to things like that. But have you got anything else before I wrap up? No, now? no, no, I'm fine now. You sure? I'm good. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure? purged. You don't want to whore yourself out anymore? Well, I, I, I can repeat all those plugs again if you want me to. No. <laughs> so that will do the Culture Mirrors podcast for this week. I'm Andy Williams. I'm Sean Wilson. We're about to lock away Robert De Niro from committing any more cinematic crimes. See you next week. <laughs>